Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. I did as any newlywed wife would do. I hopped on a UN plane and followed him up to Somalia and made my new life there. They met at a nightclub in Nairobi where 32-year-old Jessica Buchanan was working as a fourth grade teacher. She was doing what she had always wanted to do with her life, travel, meet new people, and serve. And she continued to do aid work in Somalia where she managed programs that removed landmines across East Africa. It was meaningful work and full of adventure. And then one day, she was asked to go on a field mission in southern Somalia, and she had a very bad feeling about it. Everything in her body was telling her not to go. But a more senior colleague, Powell, told her that if she didn't go, he would report her to her supervisor. And she really loved her job. So she and Powell went together, and on October 26, 2011, the unthinkable happened. I will never forget, like, just this look, really, of, like, pity on his face because he he understands that I, I haven't comprehended what's happening yet. And he just says, we're being kidnapped. And I, I'm just like, I think I'm going to have a panic attack. Like, <laughs> I think I'm going to start hyperventilating. Like, what? Like, I don't know what that, I don't know what that means. I'm a school teacher from Ohio. Like, I don't know what it means to be kidnapped by armed gunmen in Somalia. Like, that is not something I have ever prepared myself for. Up ahead on our show, we speak with former hostage Jessica Buchanan, who was kidnapped by Somali pirates and survived a harrowing 92 days before being rescued against impossible odds. I'm Kimmy Culp, and this is All the Wiser, a one-for-one charitable podcast. glad we can start 2022 together. The new year is always an opportunity for a fresh start and a time to think about the ways in which we want to make positive changes in our life. So my hope is that 2022 is the year that whatever change, whether it be small or big, that it happens for you. And that through whatever it takes to get to that change on the good days and the bad, that this podcast and the people and stories we share can be a part of that journey. I think so often in these stories, I find 
answers to questions I've been asking myself or thinking about. I find company. Sometimes I see myself in others or I'm inspired by their change. So I hope that this podcast provides you with all of that and more on your own journey to positive change and transformation in this new year. On that note, welcome to season three of All the Wiser, where in addition to telling jaw-dropping and inspiring stories, we donate $2,000 an episode to charities doing incredible work in the world. And as you've just heard, today's episode is one of the most harrowing stories we've ever told on the show. Jessica's story unfolds like a Hollywood script, although it is her real life and she has done a beautiful job in finding meaning and wisdom and lessons and extracting them from her not-to-be-believed story. While she is no longer teaching in classrooms, she is a teacher through and through and has so much to offer you. And now, here's my conversation with the brave, bold, and heroic Jessica Buchanan. Jess, hello and welcome to All the Wiser. Thank you. I am so happy to be here. Well, as I have just shared with you, you have been in my earbuds walking my dog with me these past few days as I prepared for this conversation. And I am really grateful for the opportunity. I think you have so much to offer in the sharing of your story. So thank you for making the time. Oh, well, thank you for taking the time. I appreciate it. Jess, how would you introduce yourself to our listeners? Uh, So I'm Jess, I'm a writer. I am an Enneagram 4. I'm a mother of two. I suffer greatly from wanderlust, podcaster, speaking coach, and a wife. I want to start with your childhood. Tell me if you can, if you can paint a bit about the picture of the backdrop of your childhood and growing up as a young girl. I grew up basically in the Midwest. It was very much like church was the pinnacle of what we did. It was our social structure, our social life. It was, it dictated everything that we did and how we did it. And my parents worked really hard and sacrificed a lot to send my siblings and I to Christian schools. And I think it was very instilled in us to live a life where we put others first. To whom much is given, much is required is something that I carried with me and I still, I think, carry with me. We're going to talk about many things today, but the event that happened in your life that brought us together to have this conversation occurred in October of 2011 when you were abducted in Somalia. Can you paint the picture of where you were in your life at this time? So sort of in the weeks and months leading up to October 2011, mm. what did life look like for you? Uh, well, I mean, I think life looked different than a lot of people's. I was fairly newly married uh, to my husband, Eric. He's a Swedish uh, native, and we were living in the northern part of Somalia, working together in um, different humanitarian like development aid organizations. I was definitely at a very low point in my life. I had lost my mother 
a little over a year prior and I'd lost her very, we'd lost her very suddenly. I didn't get the chance to say goodbye. She was just there and then she wasn't. And I was very deep in the grieving process, the journey and feeling very alone, feeling really, really alone. I'm living in Hargeza. There's not a whole lot going on in terms of just work. I had my husband there for support, but my family, my dad, my siblings, they were felt like a million miles away. And, and it was one of the hardest seasons of my life thus far. And walk me through what brought you to Africa, your work and sort of how you arrived in Africa. So I'm a teacher by profession. And when I was in college, I had the chance to go teach abroad for a summer in Honduras. And I just knew that that was what I wanted to do with my life. I wanted to travel. I wanted to serve. I wanted the adventure and I loved all the different people I met. I got a student teaching position at an international school in Nairobi and they offered me a permanent position at the end of my time there. And so I took it. I couldn't imagine anything any different or any better. It was literally like everything I had wanted. Um, And so I started teaching just fourth grade. I'm an elementary school teacher. And then I met my husband, Eric, in a nightclub in Nairobi one Saturday night. And we've been together. That was 14 years ago. We've been together ever since. And, And he was unlike anybody I'd ever met. You know, I'm I'm a school teacher from Ohio and here I am standing in Nairobi in a nightclub and this Swedish guy comes up to me and tells me that he has just gotten off a plane and he was in Zimbabwe this morning micro lighting over Victoria Falls. And I thought, well, you're kind of cute. So we, you know, we started dating and we got married about a year and a half later. And I did as any newlywed wife would do. I hopped on a UN plane and followed him up to Somalia and made my new life there. And I started tutoring. We had um, several Ethiopian refugees living on the compound that we were working and living in. And so I didn't have a job at the time. And Hergi says, for an expat is can be kind of boring if you don't have work to do. There's really nothing, nothing to do and you don't have any freedom. You can't go for walks or, you know, there's no Pilates class to go to. So I started uh, tutoring uh, this little girl, Mishlima. She was seven years old in English. And before I knew it, I had an entire dining room full of parents and siblings who wanted to learn English too. And then this just uh, spiraled into doing consultancies for the UN and developing curriculum for the National Curriculum Center. And then I ended up working for the Danish Demining Group, which was the mine action unit of the Danish Refugee Council in their armed violence reduction. And basically my job was to manage all of the education programs that they developed all over East Africa. And it felt amazing, right? Like you could go into a village and show these kids what these shiny leftover landmines were and make them understand that if they touch them, they could be severely injured or killed. And you felt, I guess it felt like you were actually making a difference. And you're 32 at the time. As you've said, you've fallen in love with Eric and found work that is incredibly meaningful and and I imagine exciting to some extent as well. Mm -hmm. It sounds like it was a life full of of meaning and adventure. Mm Mm-hmm. That day in October, which would change the trajectory of your life, what can you share about the circumstances, the hours leading up to the kidnapping that day? 
Yeah, I have spent a lot. I've spent the last decade going over these last hours in my mind. You know, for weeks prior to this particular field mission, I was being called to go down to the southern part of Somalia uh, outside of Mogadishu, which was definitely not the safest place in the world. I didn't feel good about it. I had a gut instinct reaction that I didn't want to go. And so I canceled the training two times prior. But then the third time it was scheduled, I called my colleague, Paul, who was a Danish gentleman who was running the field office where I was supposed to be going in Southern Somalia. And I said, I, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to go. I feel like it's not safe. And he was living down there and he was basically like, look, if you don't get down here and do your job, I'm going to report you to our supervisor. And I was like thinking about how much I love my life and how much I love my job and how it's probably hard for some people to understand, but these jobs are really hard to get and they're in high demand and there's a lot of competition. And so I felt bullied really. And so against my better judgment, I got on a plane, got down there. And I remember the morning of October 25th, 2011, I had had nightmares all night long that pirates <laughs> had stormed the, the gates and the walls of the compound and they were trying to uh, get into my room. And my door was like being banged down and I woke up like in a sweat before my alarm went off because we were supposed to be leaving. And anytime you're being transported or driving around, there's an inherent risk. I remember getting up out of bed and I'm just like drenched in sweat and I go into the bathroom and I look at myself in the mirror. And I said out loud to myself, like, Jess, do you you want to do this? And I knew the answer was no. I I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt, I did not want to leave the guest house. I did not want to get into the vehicles, the convoy that was taking us over the green line into the, the Southern part of the town. I let logic, if you will, prevail my intuition, even though it was screaming at me. My subconscious, my gut knew so deeply and so strongly that my life was about to change and not in a good way. And I remember looking at myself one last time and walking away. And that is literally what I call my moment of Mm self-abandonment. I walked away from what I knew was my truth. I walked away from what I knew was trying to protect me and for all those external pressures, the expectations, the letting down that, yes. All of, yes, all of the things that we do, I think especially as women, all of the things that we do, all of the things that we say, all of the, you know, perceived reasoning that we let take over for like our own personal safety. Yeah, so you literally walked away from yourself at that moment. I walked away from, I, I abandoned myself. I mean, I might as well have just thrown myself out of a window. Like it was, I like offered myself up to, I could have just like walked into a pirate den and said, here, take me. I do think it's important for people who are listening because to explain a Somali pirate at that time, what is that for people who mm. may be confused by the language or the time and space? If you can explain the clear and present threat and danger mm. at that time. Sure. So uh, piracy was pretty rampant in the Horn of Africa at this time. And what they would do is they would come and they would take over the ship 
and they would hold the ship and the passengers and maybe the cargo hostage for really, really high ransom demands. Now, I was not going on a ship. I was not going near the water. When you're moving in these parts of the world, there is always an overarching risk of kidnapping. But you, you know, we have security advisors, the UN has security advisors, like you should be as, I think you should be as equipped with knowledge as you possibly can before you go into those environments, which I I thought I was. But what had not really started happening until October of 2011 really was kidnappings taking place on land where somebody would be apprehended while they were in transit or taken from their particular place of work or residence. So you feel it in your bones and your soul, Mm -hmm. right? But But you walk away from the mirror, decide to go out and do your job that day. What unfolds from there as you leave and begin your day of work in Somalia that day? So I'm on day three of the, the staff trainings. We had gone down there to to work with our uh, national staff who were actually the ones going out into the villages to do the work. So I'm at the end, right? I'm leaving the next day. But this was the only training where I actually had to leave the guest house where I was basically stationed. And we had to get in a convoy of land cruisers that were armed with special police to get um, across the green line into the southern part of the city. And the reason this was so risky, I guess you could say, is because there was a lot of clan conflict. The city was divided by two clans and they were always fighting over resources, over territory. And, you know, typically as a white aid worker, I was not the target. I shouldn't have been the target or at a security risk. So, you know, we cross over to the green line. We get into a separate convoy of vehicles. We go to the the office, the field office. We do our staff training. You know, I'm hearing gunshots going off constantly, but we were allegedly like 10 minutes from the gun market. So I was just, you know, like, let's just get through this without getting shot. We have lunch with the staff and I realize in retrospect that the security advisor, the, the Somali security advisor, a man named Abdi Rizak, kept getting on the phone and getting off trying to organize our convoy of vehicles to go back to the northern part of the town. And it took like 45 minutes for us to actually get on the road, but I didn't really think much about it. You know, I don't speak Somali. I don't speak the language. I don't really know him. My colleague, Paul, he was really in charge. This was his, this was his staff. So we finally get into the convoy of three vehicles. There are armed guards in the front and armed guards in the back. We take off driving through the town of Galkayo. And we drive for about 10 minutes when we're cut off on the right side by another vehicle. And it like slashes mud up all over the windows and the windshield. We can't see out and I can't see what's happening. And I had been, you know, like sitting on my phone, texting my husband, sending work emails, wondering like, I wonder what I'm going to do for my workout today and what we're going to have for dinner. And, you know, just like normal, stupid stuff that you think about when you're done with work. And then I hear the crack of the butt of an AK-47 on our car hood. I can actually like feel it, the vibration. And then I start hearing all of these really angry men just shouting and screaming in Somali. And then um, I'm sitting in the middle in the back and the door 
on the right side is pulled open and Abdi Rizak, the security advisor, sitting there next to me. And there's a very angry man with an AK-47 and he's dressed in police uniform and he grabs Abdi Rizak. He starts pounding on his head with his gun and pulls him out of the car. And then he gets in next to me and puts the gun to my head and starts screaming at the driver to drive in English. And we just take off through town. Paul is in the front seat in the passenger side and we drive for, you know, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes. And I'm thinking, I actually can't think anything other than this is so bad. Like whatever this is, whatever is happening right now is so bad that I don't even have any frame of reference. I don't have anything to compare this to. Like my mind was just like freaking out. And I think we probably were driving like bats out of hell, literally up on two tires down, up on two tires down and for an hour, two hours. And Paul turns around and finally looks at me and I just ask him, you know, really quietly, like whisper to him, you know, what's happening? Because I'm thinking carjackings are pretty normal in this part of the world. So maybe we're just being carjacked and they're going to drive us out of the city and take all of our stuff and make us like, just kick us out and we can walk back. But I will never forget like just this look really of like pity on his face because he he understands that I, I haven't comprehended what's happening yet. And he just says, we're being kidnapped. And I, I'm just like, I think I'm going to have a panic attack. <laughs> I think I'm going to start hyperventilating. Like what? Like, I don't know what that, I don't know what that means. I'm a school teacher from Ohio. Like, I don't know what it means to be kidnapped by armed gunmen in Somalia. Like, that is not something I have ever prepared myself for. And what happens next? We drive for hours out into the desert. We stop. We change personnel. We drive some more. Sometimes we we stop and we are forced into other vehicles. I can't really tell which direction we're driving in. Not that it would matter anyway, but I keep thinking, like, if we're not driving south, then that means I have a chance because... If they're driving south, that means we're going to Mogadishu and Al-Shabaab, Islamic terrorist groups, rule Mogadishu. I'm an American woman. I will be raped and beheaded on international television if that's the case. Do you think that you're going to die or? Yeah. Yeah, 100%. 100%. I am like, I think at some point it's the middle of the night and they stop and they tell us to get out of the, the car And one of them, he has like a turban wrapped on his head and he's got a long machine gun and he points it right in my face and he like screams at me in English, walk. And I don't know, I guess because I do think I'm gonna die, I just decide like, you know what? I'm not going down without a fight. Like I'm not not going down quietly. So I say no. And he gets in my face again, puts that the barrel of his gun in in my face and says, walk. And I'm like, nope, uh uh-uh, I'm not walking. I'm not doing this. Because it's dark out there. I am surrounded by men who are armed. We go on like this a couple of times and then Paul comes over to me and he, I just remember him taking my hand and he says, Jessica, you know, we have to walk. And so we just like start walking out into, it's just this void, like just this black hole that's the desert. I can't see anything. I'm falling over rocks. I'm tripping over thorn bushes, picking myself back up. I I remember feeling blood trickle down the front of my leg. And I'm thinking, okay, this is good. This is good. I'm still alive. Like I'm still alive because I can feel pain. 
And I'm, you know, at this point, I'm I'm walking, I'm marching, marching to, I'm thinking I'm going to be gang raped and then beheaded. And I say goodbye to Eric and I say goodbye to my dad and my sister and my brother. And I ask my mom, who's been gone for about a year now, I ask her to help me be dignified. It was very important for me to be dignified. I didn't want to beg, help me be strong. And so I don't know, maybe we walk 20, 30 minutes and then they tell us to get down on our knees. And I'm just like thinking some of the most bizarre things. Like, I wonder if it's going to hurt. I wonder how long it takes to die. Like, I wonder how long it's going to be before my mom comes and gets me. I am I never got to have children. Like, I'm 32 and I never, I put off becoming a mother. I'll never get to know what that feels like. And then one of them just says sleep. Like, they just want us to lay down in the dirt and go to sleep. And I just collapse, like just collapse in the dirt. And I pass out because I the stress has just been like my body just can't handle it anymore and it just shuts down. And you would later learn about the circumstances that led to the kidnapping. Can you share how this came to be? So what I've come to understand and really only recently started talking about pretty openly is that there was actually a direct kidnapping threat on my organization that they neglected to share with me. So I'm a big believer in informed consent. I do not have what I would call informed consent. And Paul knew about it, but he didn't tell me until like day 26, day 27. He decided he needed to get that off of his chest, I guess, in case we, I don't know, in case we did die. And I was just kind of like, what am I supposed to do with all that now? right? Like you might be the last person I ever see in my entire life. Like very probably you, you probably will be the last person I talk to in my life. And how, like, what am I supposed to do with that? Yeah. So that's, that's an ongoing process still. (laughs) Yeah. That reconciliation. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And it was actually your local guide who you thought was there to make sure you were safe, who was working with the pirates to arrange the kidnapping. Yeah, I mean, he was hired by the organization to be the security advisor to advise on security to keep us safe. And he sold us over to the group of pirates for $100,000. So there was the mock execution, which happens the first night. There's a $45 million ransom. And as you said, you're you're in open air and you would never be taken to a quote-unquote, location or structure. You are always in the elements, right? In the dark, in in the desert. What does the day-to-day experience, how does this begin to unfold the routine, the days, the rhythm of being a prisoner? I I think it was really hard to establish a routine in the, the beginning of the unfolding of all of this because we were constantly moving because they didn't just take us somewhere and put us in a house or in a room. Sometimes we would move two or three times in one night. So we would uh, be sleeping on the ground. We had a mat. Eventually they gave us a blanket and you'd have just fallen asleep, which for me was my only escape. So sleep was so important to me. Um, And then I'd be woken up by somebody screaming in my face, standing, standing over and over again, which meant I needed to get up and get in the car as quickly as possible. I think we probably ran out of places to go to after 60, 70 days. And so, you know, in the third month, I think I was able to really start establishing more of a routine. 
because we were just in one place. And so that definitely gave me, it gave me something to expect in the most unexpected, like environment of the most unexpected circumstances. It gave me something to focus on in terms of planning uh, as if I needed to plan anything, but I was planning my survival, you know, like I wasn't going anywhere, but I was going to have to go somewhere in my mind. Otherwise I was going to go insane. And I was determined to come out on the other side of this as intact mentally as I possibly could. And so I realized you know, several months in that I needed to get organized and I needed to make a a plan. I needed to make a work plan for myself. And so I kind of did what I would do if I were like trying to tackle any big project at work. And I decided that I was going to divide my life memories, life experiences into increments. And I was going to go back and remember everything I could possibly remember that had ever happened to me in my life. Um, And so I was going to take one day to remember as much as I could about being four years old. And, you know, I would remember it in like the most minute detail, like my mom taking me to the movie theater for the first time. And we went to go see Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. And I remember the blue dress that she had on with the little white flowers. And I remember the shape of her teeth when she laughed and what the soda tasted like. And I just got so, so detailed. And what I found was that even if I didn't get to experience anything else and I died out there, I had had an extraordinary 32 years. I had been loved. I had been cared for. I had been treasured. I had been hurt. I'd been abused. I'd been confused. And so I spent all of this time that I had out in front of me and I dealt with some of my shit. (laughs) I forgave some people that needed to be forgiven. I forgave myself, I think, for a lot of things. I made some decisions about what I was going to do if I got out of there and how I was going to do it. And it will forever be one of the most life-changing experiences in a positive way I think I'll ever have in my lifetime. You know, you think about people who quit their jobs and travel halfway around the world to go out and find themselves. And I don't know, I kind of laugh and say, well, I got to sit there and do it for free if you don't take into account the $45 million ransom demand. (laughs) But I think it really goes back to one of my fundamental truths that I have learned through all of this is that we always have a choice, even in the most impossible circumstances when it feels like you don't I mean, I have had a choice about what I was going to eat or when I was going to go to the bathroom or where I was going to sleep, but I had a choice about how I was going to think and what I was going to think and what I was going to do with all of that. And that, when you understand the power that your mind has in order to really save your sanity (laughs) and save your life, I, I think that I'm really lucky in a lot of ways that I understand that now. Yeah. And that you came up with this project to sort of excavate the past and sit with the past and celebrate Mm -hmm. it and heal it and all of those things. Mm -hmm. And that A, that occupied you during this Mm -hmm. time, but that it was ultimately, you know, cathartic is, is pretty incredible. What were the, when you said I made some, you know, promises to myself, if I got out, what were some of those promises? 
oh, I was going to listen to myself. No one was ever going to tell me (laughs) what I could and what I couldn't do again. And it's been a journey. It's not like I just walked out of there and all of a sudden started listening to my intuition and trusting myself. It's been my life's biggest Mount Everest, I think, trying to overcome self-doubt and understand, not, not understand, but recognize my soul's voice. But life is, I think, too long to, if you're lucky, um, to be miserable. Yeah. And I'm just not going to do that. I am not, I did not survive for that. And so I thought, well, if I get out of here, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to go have babies. (laughs) I'm going to say what I need to say and I'm going to do what I survived to do. It would be 93 days and we're obviously going to talk about the day in which the Navy SEALs came and you were rescued. But there were lots of sort of tentpole moments. And one of those was a conversation that you had with Eric while you were being held captive. Can you tell me about that experience and and that conversation with him? Mm. It wasn't as emotional as I... I don't know. I wish it had been, but I, I can be extremely um, focused <laughs> and very goal oriented. It's just part of my personality. And I, there was an objective to that call, and that objective was to get me out of there, and it was to save my life. And the leader on the ground at that time was a man named Abdi, and he was just crazy. He was very traumatized. He was mentally ill. He was high on narcotics. He was so scary. And he was demanding, like, he needed to talk to a family member. He needed to talk to a family member because he didn't trust who was offering negotiation money on the other end of the line. So somehow, some way, I was put on the phone and it was actually Thanksgiving Day, which I didn't know at the time because I'd lost track of the days, but it was Thanksgiving day and I was put on the phone with him and I had, you know, two objectives. The first one was for him to, you know, tell Abdi what he needed to know in order for these negotiations to move forward because they had stalled. And the longer they stayed stalled, the longer I was going to stay out there. And the second thing was I needed him to know that I was okay, that I was going to make it through this I was going to fight tooth and nail to survive. I was strong mentally. And at that point, my health wasn't starting to to fail me yet. But I needed him. I I guess I wanted to lift the burden from him that I, I didn't want him to have this picture of me sitting under a bush crying in the fetal position. I wanted him to understand that I was actually in some ways really empowered and that I was strong and I was going to make it through this. And I I knew he would carry that message to my family as well. And I, I wanted them. So representing that piece of you in the conversation was really important. Yes. Yes. And was it true? Yeah, it was. Yeah. Yeah, it was. You know, I would take it like incrementally, you know, I would like walk around a tree or a mat or whatever I was allowed to walk around and get myself to the point mentally where I was like, okay, I can do this for another 30 days. I can do, I can do anything for 30 days. I can do this for another 30 days, you know? And so all these negotiations are going back and forth because this Mm -hmm. is a, you know, hostage negotiation with a ransom. So those conversations are going on 
I know that they have you do a proof of life video. Mm -hmm. Can you explain what that is? We participated in a series of proof of life calls and one proof of life video. Proof of life call is when they put you on the phone with someone who's representing your family or a family member and you answer a series of security questions because they need to make sure that you are indeed still alive so that negotiations can keep moving forward. Negotiations had stalled, I would say, 40, 45 days into the captivity. And so they drove us deep out into the desert one day and they said we were going to meet some journalists who ended up being like 15-year-old kids and they had this teeny tiny little Kodak like point and shoot camera that I guess had a video function on it. And this ginormous tripod, I'll always remember that thinking it was just so bizarre and off scale. But they stood us up in in front of all of these, um, all of our kidnappers that were armed. They had machine guns trained on us and they put us on this video and they coached us into saying that, um, you know, we were being well taken care of, that we were fine to implore the American military not to attack and that things weren't moving in the right direction and our families needed to do more in terms of coming up with the money. And so then what they'll do, you know, I think people have seen, you know, especially in places like Syria, proof of life videos or where people are actually being executed, but they'll distribute the video all over to all the major international uh, media outlets so that everybody can watch you plead for your life. And it's a really surreal experience to be thinking like this might be the last time my husband sees me alive. And so they've forced you to say we're being well taken care of and the conditions that clearly is not the case. What is the reality of the conditions and how you are being treated? I mean, I was being treated like an animal. I was sleeping in the dirt. I had nothing to wash with. I had nothing to clean myself with after using the bathroom. I was living in a camp of anywhere from 10 to 30 men. I was the only woman I saw the entire time. You know, we were being starved. We were given every once in a while a can of tuna or maybe somebody brought out a goat and it was slaughtered and cooked. And we were, you know, given like part of a leg to gnaw on. I mean, it was it was really demoralizing. It was humiliating. When I would ask for a doctor, I, you know, we had terrible GI issues. You're just like running back and forth to a bush with horrible stomach problems, throwing up. Like finally I contracted a urinary tract infection. And, you know, I'm prone to those anyway. So I knew what was going to happen. I knew it was going to happen. And then it just started getting out of hand. They wouldn't bring a doctor. They wouldn't bring any medicine. Every time I started to get like emotional about it, you know, in a urinary tract infection untreated is incredibly painful. And it also moves into a kidney infection, which then can poison your blood. And that was definitely where I was headed, you know, day 85, 87. I got to the point where I was in so much excruciating pain. I I was crawling to a bush to be sick and they would actually laugh at me. Like I was a source of entertainment because the thing is they don't, they don't care if you're comfortable. They don't care if you're sick, if you're healthy, they only need you alive enough so that they can cast you in. So you could just be hanging and it doesn't matter. And I know you you said you came up with names. I mean, here you are really observing these men. And so I'm curious about that. And I, I also know that there was, for somebody who 
was there as a teacher and of service to children, that some of these men were not men, they were boys. So Mm -hmm. what can you tell me about your captors and your observations of them? Yeah, I mean, sometimes it was really boring to observe them because they would chew chat all day long and then stay up all night. And chat is a like a green leaf that acts as a narcotic and it's like the equivalent of drinking 15 pots of coffee and it would make them paranoid and trigger happy and, you know, super violent. And then other times... You know, it was interesting to watch. I would try to be, I would try to pretend that I was like an anthropologist or something and and study this really kind of primitive culture, you know. Um, They're nomadic in general. And so they're used to sleeping outside on the ground. Like they're, you know, a lot of times they would... I would be asking for a doctor for some medicine and they would shout at me that, you know, I was living the same life that so many Somalis live. And by Western standard, it's hard to comprehend living such a harsh life. But I mean, you know, they were right. There are a lot of people who like that is their life. And so I think the conclusion that I finally came to after watching and sitting there thinking a lot is that, you know, first of all, nothing is black and white. Things get gray really, really fast. and you know, the other thing I, I thought about a lot was that, you know, now I am a mother and well, I don't, there's very little I wouldn't do to get my kids food and to get them clean water, right? So that the healthcare, so that they would survive. And I think in their minds, they felt like they were just doing what they had to do because they had been born into a life where they had very little options and making 20 bucks a day, getting a pack of cigarettes and chat was you know, like just making sure that I stayed alive, I think they could somehow justify that. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think like extreme circumstances, extreme poverty and desperate desperation, it causes you to do bad things. Yeah, We know that, you know, I'm privileged, right? I am so, so very privileged. I've never been really in a, in a situation where I've had to make that kind of decision and I'm not excusing it. I'm not a victim of Stockholm syndrome by any means, but I can say that I believe that if we don't continue to try to make things more equitable for everyone in the world, things like this are going to keep happening. Yes, I would agree with that. And I think that's such a, I don't know, incredible of you to experience it and and honor the reality and the complexity and the contextualization of mm-hmm. everything that occurred. You know, in hearing you speak and doing the research for today, and it's something I thought of immediately, and you, and you did as well, as you said, early in the early, you know, minutes and hours of the car, but being the only woman and the threat of sexual assault, of rape, of, mm-hmm. I would presume, repetitive sexual assault. And that, in fact, did not happen. Was it something that you were constantly feeling the threat on guard? I would imagine it would just be such an added layer on all these conditions. I'm just I'm curious during the time that this was happening, how you experienced being a woman in this circumstances with these men who clearly did not value you. Yeah, I think 
100%, I was constantly afraid that I was going to be assaulted. And it was coming. Like, I think if I had been there any longer, it would have been used as a, a means of punishment for negotiations not moving. And who knows what that would have been like. And I don't think I know for a fact that my recovery would not be where it is today had I had that complexity and that layer to heal from. And so I am infinitely and profoundly grateful that I did not experience that. It's, I mean, it's inexplainable really. Like no one understands why I wasn't. I largely credit, uh, we, and we didn't talk about the nicknames, but um, Paul and I, in order to talk about our different captors, we, we, you know, we learned their Somali names because we could hear people talking to each other and talking, but we came up with code names or nicknames for them so that they wouldn't know that we were talking about them. And some of them were not very complimentary, like Rotten or the nine-year-old crack baby, we call them because he was always high on cot. But there was one driver in particular that was with us through most of our captivity and his name was Dair and we called him Helper. And he was very religious. He prayed five times a day. He was not, he was not mean. Uh, he was actually kind. He was absolutely guilt-ridden for being there and being involved in something like this. I think there was something, you know, he needed money. He had eight children. I think there was some medical issues with one of his kids. He was desperate, but he also, I believe, protected me as much as he could. It seemed he was a little bit older than everybody else. So it seemed that he was respected as an elder and as a religious man, even though they were committing a violent crime. And he would sleep next to me most nights when he was there. Uh, and not in like a creepy, weird way, but in uh, I always felt like I could sleep when he was next to me because I don't think in reality he would have been able to stop anything that was happening to me. But for some reason, I just felt like I was safer when he was next to me. So I don't know that that's the reality, but that's how I like to think about it anyway. And you and Paul called him the helper? The helper, yeah. There was someone else who was there to help you, and that was your mom. I know who you, during this time, turned to regularly, including in the night sky. Can you tell me about your connection to your mom who, you know, as you shared, you lost just before the kidnapping? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think she was just so very near to me in general during that time. You know, before the kidnapping happened, I can remember, you know, we, Eric and I had this big cement house in the middle of the desert, basically, and it had lots of rooms and cold tile floors. And one of them I used as my yoga room and meditation room. And I remember when I came back to Hargis after she died, I would go in there with my yoga mat and I would throw it out on the floor and I would just lay on it and cry for hours by myself. I was just so, I was in so much pain over losing her. And there are two stars that come out at the same time every night, at least out there. And I would just start, I named one of the stars for her and it was my my reference point. I had made it through another day and I would tell her about what had happened during the day and where I was at emotionally and mentally and um, what I needed. And then the stars would fall down into the horizon and I would fall asleep. Um, and I swear, oh my goodness, there were times when 
we would be out like forced to walk in the middle of the night and I don't know where we were going. I don't know who we were running from and the stars in my memory would be so bright. I was just like, I felt like I was walking straight into the sun. And I remember at one time Paul turned around to me and he was like, whoa, what? Like he was like, that's your mom. Like he, you know, he and I were friends prior to this and he knew I'd lost my mom and we had talked a lot about it. And he was like, she is there. Like she is guiding us. We're going to make it. And um, it was night 92. And I said to her, you know, it was my last time talking to her in that way. And I said, you know, mom, I need you. I'm not doing well. Like I am in so much pain. I have... I'm hallucinating with fever. Like I I need you to go and tell God that he needs to do something or else I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to get back to to Eric. I'm not going to get back to dad and Amy and Steven. So if you can do something about this, I would really appreciate it. <laughs> now is the time. And, yeah, it's, it's time. It's time. It's go time. And I fell asleep and I woke up a couple hours later because uh, I needed to be sick. And so I stood up on my mat, sort of-ish, you know, like half stood up. And um, the I, I had to use the word toilet to be excused from my mat. And I so I said the word toilet and no one, there were nine guys on the ground that night. And no one was awake, which was so weird and odd. There was always at least one of the, the pirates who stayed awake to keep watch over the camp, make sure we didn't escape, make sure we weren't being invaded by another group or anything. But everybody was completely passed out. So I said, toilet again, a little bit louder, but I didn't have a whole lot of time because I was really sick. So I just picked up, um, I had a small little flashlight and I picked it up and I started flashing it. So I wanted them to know that I wasn't trying to escape. I found the nearest bush, did what I needed to do and came back to my mat and um, it was really dark, like really, really pitch black. The stars had gone down into the horizon. There was no moon that night. It had gotten really cloudy. And I remember thinking, man, oh, if I had the strength and I knew where I was, now would be the best time to try to escape. But it just, I knew that that was not, that would never happen for me. So I laid back down on my mat and rolled myself up into a bl- my blanket. And I could hear this scratching noise like... I don't know, like a small animal or something in the grass was coming toward me. And I got up because I thought maybe it was these big beetles that would come out at night, like, and they would get in my hair and they would get in my clothes. And I was, <laughs> was not in the mood. So I was like shaking my blanket. Nothing was coming out. Lay down. I do this a couple of times and I'm just worn out by all of that. And I'm like, forget it. I just need to go to sleep. And then about 30 seconds goes by and Dair Helper, who's sleeping on my left, he jumps up and I can't see his face because it's too dark, but I can sense that he he's just like in sheer terror and he's whisper screaming at all the other guys to get up. And um, then the night just erupts into automatic gunfire and it's just explosions. And what do you think is happening? I think we are going to be kidnapped by another group. That was always the threat and that was always the fear that some, you know, people were watching us. It was Al-Shabaab, you know, we were going to be sold, we were going to be taken, then we'd be executed. And I'm like hearing them all, they're just dropping to the ground, like they're moaning. I I heard one of them call out for his mother. It was horrific. And I'm... 
I have my face covered with my blanket and I'm just trying to get as low down to the ground as I possibly can. I just want to disappear. I just remember saying, oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God. And I think, yeah, you know what? I'm just really not going to make it, am I? Like I have done everything I know to possibly do and I still, I'm still just not going to make it out of here. And then somebody grabs my legs and shakes my shoulders and pulls the blanket away from my face. In my memory, I'm fighting back. I've since come to find out that I I was not. I just had my hands up in front of my chest, like trying to protect myself. And I wasn't making a sound. And I can't see anything because it's just so dark, but I can kind of make out these figures and they're just big black blobs, I guess you could say. Who you believe to be your your new captors. Yeah. I yeah. think that I'm going to be killed. Yeah. I think I'm I or taken to another yeah. group. And I'm thinking I'm like, I don't have I don't think I have the energy for this to learn another group. You know, I it's kind of like better the devil you know, right? Like the situation wasn't great, but at least I knew it and I kind of knew what to expect. Now I don't think I have what it takes to like manage a whole new group and survive that. And as I'm like mentally processing how I'm not going to be able to survive another kidnapping. I hear the voice of uh, just this young American man. And he, I mean, he reminds me of my brother really, and he knows my name. And he says, Jessica, we're the American military. You're safe now. We're going to take you home. And um, by that point, I can kind of make out some masks. And I see like four or five men standing around me and he, the one who's speaking to me, gets down on his knees and helps me sit up. And I just immediately start shaking. Like I go straight into shock and I am like, just, I can't calm down. I can't stop shaking. And all I can say over and over again is you're American. You're American. (laughs) What? what, You're American. I don't, I don't get it. You're American. Like I can't, I'm like trying to figure out like, how do they find me? Where did they come from? How, like, how is this? I just don't understand what is happening here. And one of them says, we've been watching you for like a really long time since day one. And we know how sick you've been. And he hands me some medicine and a bottle of clean drinking water. <laughs> I've been drinking out of diesel cans at this point. And um, I take the medicine. And then another one says, do you know where your shoes are? We need to get you out of here because we don't think it's, it's not safe. We need to get you to a point, the extraction point or whatever. And I look at him and I'm like, my shoes... Uh, and he's like, okay, it's okay. And so he just literally like bends down, picks me up, throws me over his shoulder and takes off running across the desert. And really like, all I can think is like this poor guy, like, cause I'm almost six feet tall. I was like, it's a good thing I've lost like 40 pounds. Like <laughs> break this guy's back. It's so weird. The things that you think about in these moments, but we get to a place that, that you know, they have deemed safe. And my first question is where's Paul? And he's off to my left and he comes over and he says, Jessica, do you know who these guys are? And I'm like, I like, I have no idea what is going on. And he's, he says, this is SEAL Team 6. These are the guys that got Osama bin Laden. And, you know, I'm still shaking. I, you know, someone goes to go get my shoes. I mean, it's just insane. And I think still like 10 years out, I'm still processing like, 
how does something like that happen? You know, I'm, and I don't say this in like a deprecating way, but just like in a reality, like I am a school teacher from Ohio. <laughs> yeah. How? How is SEAL Team 6? Yes. Yes. How does that even happen? How do I, like, how do I even, you know, and so just the events that have unfolded, like finding out that President Obama is the one who actually called my father to let him know that I had survived and that I had been rescued by SEAL Team 6 and I was coming home. And, you know, I mean, it's just been like one mind-blowing. And there was a couple of beautiful sort of moments that vignettes with the Navy SEALs that you shared that I would love for you to share with our audience about the one with, when they lied on on you mm-hmm. after this time. Can you explain that? Yeah. So as we were waiting for the helos to come in, they weren't sure the premises were safe. And so they asked Paul and I to lay down on the ground and and several of them, about four or five of them actually laid down on top of us to protect us. And then I just remember looking up and then the rest of them had formed a shield around us. And we laid like that until the helicopters came in and they lifted us literally out of hell. I think another really significant moment is we were we were on the helicopter, we landed in Galkayo, they put us on a plane and then we were on our way to Djibouti to the military base where we were going to be hospitalized. And um, I was sitting, the lights were finally up. Everybody was celebrating, you know, they were so like jubilant and and they wanted to tell me who was playing in the Super Bowl. And at this point there had been an NBA strike. So they were filling me in on all of that. And I just like, I didn't have any words. Like I was genuinely really concerned that I had lost all my social skills because I had spent so much of my captivity in silence in like solitary confinement, essentially. And I remember sitting there with my back against the wall of the plane, watching everybody celebrate. And there was a guy, he was the FBI hostage recovery team. And he got down on my level and he handed me a folded, folded something. And, and I looked down and it was an American flag. And he just said simply, Welcome home, Jessica. And then I just remember like the floodgates just releasing. Because, you know, I hadn't been able to cry. I hadn't been able to emote pretty much the entire captivity. And just, I thought, I didn't know if I was ever going to stop crying. But I have that, that flag in my office and I look at it every single day. And, you know, I... There are no words to express how lucky I am, but I think that especially in this day and age where we feel so conflicted and maybe things are so polarized, it's it does mean something to belong to a country that will go to such lengths and expend every resource available to bring back one, just one. I, I mean, that just doesn't happen anywhere else. Yeah, it really is extraordinary. And I loved the story of, at the time, President Obama, the conversation that he had with your dad, which I think is another great American moment to be proud of. Mm -hmm. Can you share that conversation? 
Yeah, it's definitely one of my favorite parts of the story. My dad and my sister were in D.C. Uh, meeting with the FBI at the FBI he- headquarters, actually, that day, and they had no idea that a, a military intervention, a rescue operation was taking place. And the meetings had not gone well, and they were really discouraged and really feeling low. And the FBI victim's assistant's rep had convinced them to stay in a hotel overnight. I think she knew that the rescue was taking place, but couldn't say anything. And it was the night of the State of the Union. And so they, you know, stayed in a hotel in DC and my dad got a call on his cell phone from some uh, DC number. And they asked if his line was clear and if it was like, if he was going to be available in 45 minutes and this went on like, you know, every five minutes for the next hour. And finally, the last call he got said, this is the last call you're going to get from from us, but we want to let you know that the next call you receive will be from the president of the United States. And so my dad and my sister are just sitting in like a Marriott in downtown Washington, D.C., waiting for his cell phone to ring. And it does. And um, he says, John, this is Barack Obama. And I just want to let you know that there has been a rescue mission in Somalia and your daughter, Jessica, was rescued successfully. And she is safe and she's on her way home right now. And I just wanted to call you myself and let you know as the father of two daughters myself, I can't imagine what you have gone through in these last months. And we just wanted to, to let, I just wanted to let you know. And, you know, I mean, <laughs> what do you do in that moment? You know, my dad is very quiet, kind of stoic and you know, you're talking to the president of the the most powerful man in, in the world, really, about your daughter. And, and the news is that she's coming home is pretty extraordinary. Yeah, that's remarkable. So I want to talk about reuniting with, with Eric and the reality, which you have coined this, I'm repeating you about surviving survival, sort of the aftermath of, of everything that you have been through. So... What can you tell me first about reuniting and you know with Eric and that first time seeing him? Mm. I mean, it's one of those moments where you've like replayed it over and over in your mind, and it's like even better than how you've replayed it. I I just couldn't. We reunited in a hospital room in um, Italy on Siganella, a military base there. Uh, Because I was participating in the Department of Defense's hostage reintegration program. And, um, you know, like, you just can't believe that the other person is real and that you get to hold each other again. And it was very, um, the protocol was pretty rigid. So I only got to be with him for about an hour in the hospital room. And then the next day we got to go to lunch, but it was chaperoned by a psychologist that had been assigned to me. And then the next day we got to do dinner and, you know, it was like in stages. And I found that that was very, it was actually really good because it's just so much, like they have so much to say and you haven't even started, like even begun processing everything that has happened because you've just been trying to survive. So they actually have people there helping with that reintegration process. 
Yeah, it's a it's a program that ha- is very extensively has been researched and tested and it's voluntary. So I didn't have to do it, but I felt like, you know, they are the ones that got me out. So I feel felt like they were the experts and I had already committed to myself that I would take all the measures that I needed to ensure that my mental health was as intact as it could be in my recovery process. And I knew it was going to be extensive. Well, yeah, because it's patriotic and cinematic and beautiful and real as all of the stories of the Navy SEAL and the president, you know, calling your father are. My guess is, you know, a lot of the realities are just beginning at a moment that people probably want to be, as it is, celebratory and hopeful Mm -hmm. and optimistic, you know, and, and you've talked about this, but that surviving to some extent in captivity, you're just is almost easier and and then than surviving some of those post days. Yeah, because you don't have to make any decisions. All you have to do is just stay alive. And in a lot of ways, that's a, that's easy. That's the easy part, you know. And that's what I always talk about: surviving survival. It's actually, I didn't coin it. It's a, a book by a journalist named Lawrence Gonzalez, and I found the book about five years ago. And I felt like, oh my God, I've been seen. And he, you know, goes on to research and basically just talk about the the struggle and the, the long road ahead of people who have survived traumatic experiences. And a, a lot of the cases that he highlights are people who've like survived shark attacks or like been shipwrecked, but just the PTSD and what that can do and uh, the aftermath uh, of trauma and what it's like to rebuild your life again. I mean, that is a whole other ball of wax in terms of survival. And it's one that I'm still doing, you know, but in many ways, I lost my life and I lost my career. You know, there was no way I was ever going to be able to go back to the field again and feel safe. I ended up, we went back to Africa. We went back to Kenya, which I loved you know, I will always feel like Nairobi is my favorite place in the whole world. We went back for about a year and my son was born there. I got pregnant about two weeks after the rescue, which I joke about our book being called Impossible Odds, but that was <laughs> definitely the impossible odds. I don't even know how that happened, but it did. And I, he was born in Nairobi and I, I my postpartum depression and anxiety and PTSD was so severe that we had to leave and and come back to the States. And, you know, here I am in the DC metro area. I'm a new mom. I've got a Swedish husband. I've got a suitcase full of trauma. And um, I haven't lived in the States for almost 10 years. And how do you even connect with the mom on the playground? Like, how do you go about looking for a new job? How do you even know what you can do anymore? It was hard. What are the things you turn to during this time? What what works and what doesn't work as you, I mean, the layers of A, just beginning a pregnancy two weeks after mm-hmm. this, you know, and then new country, new city, trauma, postpartum. I mean, so, so many layers and complexities. So what do you turn to and what's working for you and serving you? And, and what are some of the things that aren't? Therapy. <laughs> Deep constant therapy. I needed somebody to talk to, you know, um, of course we, my, I had my family for support. My dad was 
fairly close by and I'm very close to him and my sister. Um, but I, my therapist was just, she was a godsend. And, you know, I'm a big believer that if you need medication to get you out of the valley, like there is no stigma, there is no shame, take the medication. Um, you know, I struggled with nightmares. I struggled with panic attacks, anxiety. Like I was afraid to be alone with my baby. Like, you know, all of the worst new mother feelings and fears and nightmares you could possibly have. I'm pretty sure I had them. And I just committed to keep showing up in whatever shape that looked like. You know, I mean, some days I did not get out of my pajamas. Some days I couldn't think about anything other than the kidnapping, but I just, I just kept trying And, you know, that's not really profound, but I think sometimes we try to make things too complicated. And I think oftentimes we don't give people the credit that's due. Yeah. It's extraordinary to keep showing up in the aftermath of trauma. And I think that so many people are so brave and so inspiring because they just keep putting one foot in front of the other, lay down and rest, but you have to keep getting up. And you have to keep moving. I think for me, and I think a lot of it has to do with my personality, also my spiritual background, my faith background, but I had to figure out what it all meant. And I had to make it mean something. And that has been a wild ride, trying to figure all of that out. But it's also been really exciting and really interesting. And I've been able to make a lot of connections with myself and with others along the way. And I was thinking about sort of these, the great identifier, this post-it note, if you will. I think you've even heard you say, you know, the post-it note on your forehead, I was kidnapped by pirates. You know, this this story that others identify you with and that you can identify yourself with. And my guess is that's something that people can relate to in ways big or small when you're identified by something that's traumatic So what have you learned about that and working through that process? Well, you know, I think for a lot of years, I was determined to not let it define me. Like I'm so much more than just the girl that was kidnapped by Somali pirates, right? Like I can do, I, you know, I can do this and I'm that, and I'm not just that girl, right? And then, I don't know, it's, been really just in the last couple of years where I thought I, I don't had this like epiphany for me anyway that was like, why is it that we don't let these things define us or we don't want them to define us when actually like they are the thing that defines us? And the thing that defines us is what makes us like, I'm a badass, right? Like, look what I, you know, and I'm I'm just obviously using myself as an example, but I think every single person could go back to some sort of touchstone, some sort of life-defining moment to use as a baseline to show them what they're made out of. And I go back to that and I think, well, if I could survive that, then I think I can make it through whatever is next. I love that. Right? Yeah. So someday I'm going to do a TED Talk on that, I think because I, I want to make a case for letting our hard stuff define us because I think it absolutely does. It shows us how inspiring and incredible we are. Human beings are so amazing and so resilient and I'm blown away every day by people's stories. That is for sure your next TED Talk and I am listening to it. <laughs> so 
speaking of seeing your strengths and kind of looking outside and back at who you are in that moment, you shared a beautiful story about your kids and you know, this idea, as you said, you lived for a while, a fear of being found out, right? You're a new mom, new city. But eventually, I know your son, you now have a son and a daughter. You know, the moment comes when someone at school says, was your mom? Oh, God, yes. <laughs> Abducted by pirates? Yep. So the conversations begin. But you yeah. shared a story of your son and daughter looking at a picture of you while you were held captive. And I would love for you to share that story with me now so everybody listening can experience it. Uh, and this is the part where I'm going to start crying. Yeah, I um, it was several years ago. I think my daughter, she's seven now. She must have been about four. I was coming home from something. It was in the middle of the summer and my husband had taken the kids to the pool and he called me and he said, we're going to have to have a talk with the kids when you get home because someone at the playground wanted to know, I came up to Augie and Abba and asked them if their mom had been a, a kidnapped by pirates. And I was like, oh, okay, great. I wasn't ready for that, but I guess they are. So we, you know, we've got the book, we've got copies of the book Impossible Odds laying around and in the middle, there are pictures of Eric and I and when we got married and there's really only one photo during the captivity. It's a still of that proof of life video and my eyes are swollen shut. You know, I think I lost 20 pounds at that point. My hair is sticking up all over the place. Like it's not a great picture for sure. And I remember... Augie, who was older, about seven at the time, being very fixated on the fact that there was a man standing behind me with a gun. But my daughter came over to me and she climbed into my lap and she wrapped her arms around me and she looked me right in the face and she just said, Mama, you're so beautiful. And I felt this, I think, rush of... I don't know what to call it, just redemption. You know, that like in that moment, to see yourself through your child's eyes and they don't see the hardship, they don't see the heartache, they don't see the pain or the trauma. They just see your spirit. And for them to be able to identify that, I can go back to that moment and know I, I would never want to go back to it, but know that I have come out of it. And that's pretty, pretty special. And I know that you had the opportunity to meet some of the SEALs that, mm. that saved you. So I'm curious about that. And then I'm also curious about your relationship with Paul and, and what happened, you know, after you were rescued and, and if if you guys ever reconciled. So I have ha I had the opportunity to meet many of the SEALs that rescued me very quietly, very privately. It was another very defining moment. I think for one, I was able to say thank you in person, which, you know, if there's any, I wish there was a word, like a phrase that you could say that meant more, but like if there was, I would say it, but there isn't. And that's basically what I said to them. And I just was so grateful to get to show them pictures of my kids and let them know that I was doing well and that their their constant sacrifice was 
honored and appreciated. I think the other thing that I took away from that meeting was that for a long time, I didn't know how to tell this. I didn't know where I fit into the story when I was telling it. I think a lot of times I told it as in I was the damsel in distress and they came and rescued me. And I think it was really like in conversation with them that it wasn't, it was like this realization, this aha moment of like, oh no, you know what? There gets to be more than one hero in this story. And while they are absolutely heroes, 150%, there might be room for me to be a hero in my own way, in my own story. And that has been, that was really empowering and it has definitely change the way I tell it and the way I move in it. And I have a friendship with the one who actually carried me out, Justin Sheffield. Um, And I actually got to see him not in person not too long ago. And yeah, he's just a really cool guy and a really special person. They all are. They're just really amazing, amazing individuals and their families. Gosh, they're just incredible. As far as Paul is concerned, We did not ever reconcile. I was mad when I got out, when I was able to finally start processing my emotions and why the whole thing had happened and how it had happened. My organization, I felt like neglected their duty of care. And so it took a long time to think about it and not think about it. And I have only really recently started speaking out about the fact that don't really agree with how they handled the whole situation. As far as I know, Paul is still working in development and aid is somewhere out there. And I do, I wish him well. And I hope he, I hope he's well. Well, thank you for sharing both of those. And I love the reframing of the hero story and the journey of the multiple heroes in your story. And that that, that came as part of the conversation with the SEALs is awesome. So last question, when you share your story and, you know, you've called your podcast, which we're going to heavily promote here on All the Wiser because it's really, really good. Thanks. A declaration of healing. It's an incredible podcast. And so I know you share bravely, you share widely and openly your journey of your time there, your time after, you know, in your present life. So I'm curious when you share your story I guess your intention and what you hope people take away from it. I think that for me, not being able to share openly makes me feel shame. And I think I carried a lot of shame around actually what had happened to me. It was hard to explain, made me feel like just a freak for a a long time. Um, And I, one of the reasons I started, uh, we should talk about that, my podcast with my my podcast partner, Jessica Kidwell, is that we really believe in in the power of sharing our stories and reducing stigma. And, and if we all are just honest and authentic about what we're going through, then it's like, oh, well, you feel that way too? And oh, wow. Okay. I didn't go through a kidnapping, but I've, I've been through this. And you know what? That makes me feel feelings of shame and isolation as well. And just, it doesn't matter the circumstance, it's the the feelings before, during, and after. And that's what we have in common. And I think, you know, when you asked about things that I used, I guess, or touchstones for my recovery when I was getting through 
PTSD and all of the things in the aftermath community, building community is what I've learned has been a cornerstone to building resilience. And I've seen that through different interviews that I've done with amazing people that I've gotten to talk to and also in my own life. And so our goal is to really just continue to share in order to build a bridge of connection so that people feel less isolated and alone. Well, Jessica, thank you for sharing your story with me and with everyone listening today. I know it'll make a difference and hopefully you will also have many new listeners to your incredible podcast as a result of this conversation as well. So thank you for your honesty, your vulnerability, and yeah, just all of your... I think, you know, as you said, you've been on this quest to make meaning of it and you just are so able to, I think, extract and articulate really meaningful lessons that are of service to, I think, every human, right? As you said, because everybody is suffering in one form or another mm-hmm. and some, you know, process of survival, whether it be in the current moment or one that they're still healing from the past. So thank you for being of service in that way. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity uh, to share. And just for this moment of connection, it's why we're here. Thank you. And we're going to end with just something a little fun and light. It takes 60 seconds. Perfect. Okay. All right. So lightning round. I know I can ask this first question because I've listened to your podcast. Favorite curse word? Oh my God. Am I allowed to say it on here? Yes. Bring it. I do like a fuck. (laughs) (laughs) So fucking good. So fucking good. (laughs) Binge-worthy show. Oh man, that rotates. Right now it's Ted Lasso. So good. So good. Best way to spend a Friday night. Mm, Around a fire pit with my best friend and my kids running around and a glass of red wine. Someone you would love to meet. Michelle Obama, all day long. (laughs) Favorite song? You Are My Sunshine, because my mom used to sing it to me. Greatest hope for your children? Oh, that they make an impact and that they live lives that have purpose and meaning. I love it. Thank you again, Jess, for everything and just beautiful conversation full of so many gifts. I appreciate it so much. Thank you so much for your time. Today's episode with Jessica supports Hostage US, a nonprofit based in Washington, D.C. that supports families of hostages as well as returning hostages as they try to get back to a sense of normalcy and home. I hope you were as inspired by Jessica's story as I was. She certainly made me think deeply about trusting myself, my intuition, and also reframing the way I think about the more difficult times in my own past. I loved her notion that you could sort of turn to yourself in your most difficult times and look to that person for strength and courage. If you've enjoyed this episode, I ask you to head on over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review the show. It is so appreciated and goes a long way in helping other people discover all the wiser and incredible people like Jessica Buchanan. Another way you can support the show is by sharing it. 
So if you have a favorite episode, whether it's today's or an episode you've heard in the past, please share it with a friend. It goes a long way in helping us share more stories of the wisdom that comes on the other side of pain. Until next time, take care of yourself and one another. All the Wiser is produced by Erica Gerard at Podkit Productions. Our sound engineer is Kelly Kramerick, and our associate producer is Tara Daigle. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.